Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Scott Converse. He's our Program Director for Continuous Improvement, Project Management, and Business Analysis Center for Professional and Executive Development, the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Scott has over two decades teaching in the areas of project management, gathering business requirements, process improvement using Lean Six Sigma, and many more. So he's a practitioner, he's a coach, and a technical advisor who reviews and upgrades group work and full organizational initiatives. Welcome, Scott, to the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here. So as we're hearing from your bio, Scott, you're in the trenches of organizational efficiency every single day. Your job is to figure out where the inefficiencies linger and then fix them. That's right. Yeah, one of the things I really love about the work that I do is there's a teaching aspect. I do a lot of professional development courses and classes with folks in higher ed, but also in the private and public sector. But I'm also measured on some of the project work that I do. So working in continuous improvement projects, either leading or participating or mentoring individuals. And I think that's really kind of helped the content over the years. You start to find out a particular tool or activity that really works well in a particular environment, but then also tools that maybe a have aged and are ready to be put in the appendix section of, of the workbook. Yeah. Like, I can't wait to dig into all of this. And I want to start with your teaching side. And that's really how you were discovered at University of Wisconsin Madison. You were just teaching. You were in a class doing what you do, telling the students, hey, this is how to make great organizational and business operations decisions. One of your colleagues got wind of you and what you do. And she sat in on one of your classes. She came in and she basically thinks you walk on water, as I heard the story from her. But she left your class early. She walked out of the class, and I don't know what you thought about it, but she felt like she had just found the person who was going to help save Madison's processes and practices. And she walked out and she told me, Sarah, do you know how close we were to missing this? He's just sitting there telling it to students. We need him. And so that's the story as I heard it. I don't know how it yeah, happened for yeah, you. It's uh, kind of a funny story. As you were describing it, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. You know, Now we need the sound effects with the, the backwards in time uh, <laughs> motion. But yeah, I was teaching a class, uh, continuous improvement techniques in, in service and healthcare environment. Basically, people-focused organizations. And um, her name's Alice. And Alice uh, worked within the university right at this time. We were in an election cycle, and it didn't really matter which candidate you chose. Both candidates at this time thought that the best way to get out of this uh, big financial recession that the whole country was in was to have the government spend more and in part spend more on raw research. And Madison's a tier one research university, one of the world's best. And so there was a big push to help make the support activities of research better. The research was already 
top notch, some of the world's best, but our ability to speed up the process, the ways in which researchers did their research activity was, um, was frustrating. Anyway, that was the work that Alice was working on was how do we make research support better? I was teaching this service and healthcare class and I asked her to come in when she had heard about some of the work that I did. I, I asked her to come in because it was always a difficult conversation with you know, most of the students that I work with are industry professionals. Only a little bit of my time is spent at the undergrad or graduate level. Most of it's in professional development coursework. And uh, when I work with business professionals on best practices in continuous improvement, uh, on how to make work better, how to reduce frustration in the workplace, because that's really what I think of when people ask me what continuous improvement is about. I, I say, you know, find the frustration and let's try to reduce. In any case, in the classes, Frequently, business professionals, they'll push back and say, well, what are you doing on campus to help make work better? You know, what does the university do? And it was a kind of the classic case of the cobbler's kids have no shoes. We weren't really doing a lot of structured, organized, continuous improvement. And so when Alice asked to sit in the class, I'm like, absolutely, we'd love to have you as a participant. And so I did everything I could to make her want to come to the course. We get there in the morning and I start the class out by saying, you know, working in service environments is extremely difficult. In many ways, it's much more difficult than working in a manufacturing sector where, you know, you can dictate on the front end the quality level of the raw materials like the steel and the copper and the subcomponents coming in. You can't do that when you're serving people. Sure, we could make your hospital system more efficient or we could make your call center more efficient if we only allow individuals with broken legs or only one type of service request issue to call in. I said, we have to create systems that are robust enough to handle all of the different types of activities that as humans, we ask for it to be fulfilled. And that rang true, especially in higher ed. It's one of the things that we try to put our hats on is the diverse workplace, the diversity of the students and thought and research that's going on. In any case, we then went through some examples of frustration in the workplace and how continuous improvement tools can be used to help make them better. We'd gotten through sort of the morning session I saw a lot of excited looks on people's faces in the classroom, but Allison, her colleague, they were sitting in the back of the room, they were whispering to themselves, and um, before lunch, they got up and left. And I was co-teaching the class with a colleague of mine, and I turned to Carl and I said, what did we say? What did we do? Right, right, um, I bet. <laughs> and I thought I would never hear from her again, but uh, no, she called me right back later that afternoon. She's like, I'm sorry that I got up and left, but everything that you were describing is exactly what we're experiencing in the higher ed support environment that we're in right now. And I, I couldn't go, I couldn't wait to get back to my colleagues and tell them the news that there is a recipe, there is a way, there are a series of methods and activities that you can perform to help make work better. And it applies directly to higher ed environments. So she said, I'm sorry I left, but it was because I was so excited to get back to my colleagues and say, I think I have a direction for us to go. I really like what you said find the frustration and try and fix it. And that's what you do. Your whole career is dedicated to that. 
Why do you think in higher ed that doesn't take? Like what we're teaching our students doesn't seem to be what we practice in higher ed as practitioners. Why do you think it's just not been that way historically? Yeah, I think for a really good question like that, the answer is always it depends. But I do think that there are a couple of reasons why we don't see systematic continuous improvement or an applied approach at trying to make work better. It's done more in pockets or at the individual level. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because many managers, leaders, chairs, deans, provosts, chancellors, they're all high performers in the workplace. They've done good work in the past. They were technically good, if not great, at the work that they performed. And then they moved into a leadership role, into a managerial role. And their action-based problem-solving approach is the technique that they use to solve problems. And we talk about different ways to solve systems problems in our classes. And one of the classic ways is sometimes called action or option-based problem-solving, in which, you know, you bring a group of people together in the room, you explore the underlying issues that seem to be the frustration or the problem in the workplace. Oftentimes, as that questioning or that discussion happens, you're laying out underlying issues. Those issues are in many ways like some of the variables that are creating the frustration. And then you identify a solution, typically right in that meeting with the individual or with the group. You identify a solution that attacks one or more of those issues or variables. And you go out and implement it. And these high performers are really good at this action-based problem-solving approach. And what I love about action-based problem-solving is it's really quick and it's effective when you've only got one, two, three underlying issues, when the number of variables that you're trying to resolve is a manageable few, a handful or less. But in many service processes, especially within higher ed, you're not dealing with one, two, three variables. You're dealing with dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of underlying variables. You know, it's not just one type of end user. There are many types of end users all making different types of requests. You've got different work groups that are performing the work to fulfill a service request or to create the output that has been requested for across different departments and divisions. You've got different sets of approvals. You've got all sorts of data repositories, data systems that are collecting this information and some of the inconsistencies that can happen when you do data collection and data management. And then you've got, in many cases, you have outside groups that are dictating or mandating the way that work should be performed. You know, we're talking about federal, state, local regulation or compliance, both externally, and then you've got internal compliance rules that you have to follow. The list goes on and on and on and on. And that action-based problem solving, where you try to identify a solution in that one sitting and go out and implement it, it just breaks down. You try a solution. It doesn't reduce the frustration. It doesn't improve performance. And so you try another solution. It also misses. And after two or three attempts, you just raise your hands collectively and go, well, gosh, with our brightest and best trying their best, we don't seem to see the performance gains. We don't seem to see the frustration reduction that we're looking for. And there has to be another way. And that's what we take a look at is a more 
systematic way of looking at processes and doing continuous improvement work that's data driven, but it relies on a lot of both qualitative data collection, you know, stories, interviews, direct observation, but also that quantitative data that you can use from the data repositories to understand current state, eventually get to root causes, and then create a solution implementation plan that is varied, that has a variety of different options to it. It's really these more advanced approaches are just the scientific method applied to higher ed and to business processes. And so I think it really resonates well for groups. They like the idea that they're not just making intuitive decisions, that it is based on evidence, it's based on data that it involves some amount of analysis and work. But one of the characteristics of poorly performing processes, uh, processes that create frustration, is that they're typically not measured very well. There may be a lot of data that's collected, but that data doesn't describe the frustration that your end users and your process workers are experiencing. And so frequently, one of our first challenges in this data-driven approach is, hey, we don't have any data that describes the phenomena that we're trying to resolve. And so sometimes it's building data collection plans, coming up with ways to measure what hasn't been measured before or what was deemed impossible to measure. You know, how do you measure customer satisfaction? How do you measure pain? How do you measure academic success? These are difficult to handle it's not just like measuring height or distance, but this scientific method approach seems to work very well, especially at large, complex systems that uh, higher ed, I don't want to say fraught with, makes it sound really bad, but the work that's done in higher ed, there are many processes that span departments, divisions, across multiple institutions, multiple universities, and those are ripe candidates for these different approaches at making work better. All right. So you gave us a really lovely overview of sort of the big picture. Fantastic. I want to go back to where I would imagine you sometimes hit early resistance, which is in that problem identification. Sure. The big group meeting, you got everyone who needs to be there in the room together. You're very excited to start the process. But maybe people don't have the right data. Maybe we aren't willing to actually acknowledge mm -hmm. what could be the problem, right? Because it might reflect poorly on our own job performance or our own standing in the university or with the other people in the room. Have you seen that where <laughs> right away or there, I guess the other thing I would say that I've seen. When haven't I seen okay. it? Because yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. I'm thinking about this and I'm like, I've sat in those rooms too. And sometimes it's, we actually have more data than we really know what to do with. And there's that paralysis by analysis. So, sure. it, you know, kind of touch on a couple of those points. Like, how do you just work through it? I would imagine there's yeah. a level of patience you need as a facilitator of this. But what else? Yeah. Wow. So maybe the secret ingredient to continuous improvement success is that scenario that you just painted a picture of. Whenever you're taking a look at how do we better understand current state and then make a future state in which work is made better, in which frustration is reduced, some sort of change is going to have to happen. And so what you're describing, that resistance, that change resistance, that happens in 
any type of project-driven environment, but especially in process-driven environments in which people are performing the same work over and over and over again. I mean, that's the definition of a process is you got a beginning and an end series of steps that create some sort of fulfilled request or some sort of output, but it happens over and over again. And so you have many people who do work, do work well, and they do it over and over and over again, but combined throughout the entire system, we're not getting the level of performance or the output that we had hoped for. And so as you start to paint a picture of what future state might look like, it's very common in process-driven work activities to see that change resistance. It's fine when other people have to change, when other groups have to perform differently, but not for me, not for my Right. It, even when you paint a picture of, hey, future state will create a time savings or a cost savings or will be able to have less rework or fewer mistakes. You know, you're trying to paint a picture of what the, are the benefits of future state. And I frequently see individuals that assume that the plan to reducing change resistance is to talk more or communicate more about future state benefits. And benefits are always great. But remember, in this data-driven approach, you're not starting with a solution to implement. You're starting with a problem, a performance gap, and you're trying to understand what in current state is creating that gap. What are the root causes? So you don't yet know what the solution is. So describing the solution in detail and those benefits in future state is often vague. You're going to have people who are going to be frustrated and want to push back and say, hey, I've been doing my work in the past and I have been successful. I have been getting the pats on the back and the positive performance reviews. So why should I change? Managing that change resistance and getting not just 51% to be on board in terms of buy-in and user acceptance, getting up the large majority on board and how to deal with those change resistors that aren't on the fence. Sometimes you're going to have change resistors that are so locked into their perception of the way the world works that changing them may be almost impossible how to deal with those you know those naysayers or those no-nos how to get the large majority that's sitting on the fence listening to your arguments for future state benefits and the naysayers arguments for why we should remain the way things are that's a big part of the equation about how to see continuous improvement success in future state and the good news is is that there is a mountain of research and applied evidence on techniques to help get user acceptance and buy-in, but it has to be built into this data-driven approach at, well, what's the real root cause to our process problems? Along the way, how do we make sure that we've got a plan that is going to help move people and make them more change ready for the things that we'll see in future state? What you're describing critically important. I'd say the most important equation in the class that we may be taking a look at is technically robust solutions are great, but if you don't get user acceptance and buy-in, you're not going to see the end user benefit, the business benefit. And so understanding how to manage both of those two in this change equation, really, really important. All right, let me probe a little bit on the change resistors because that's that human element that's so unpredictable, right? We can make the best case ever, as you suggested, for being able to make this change. Like, here are the benefits. Here's how it's going to reduce frustration, et cetera. And yet, 
people look at themselves and say, well, I don't need to be the one to change. So do you have any kind of techniques or ways that you approach kind of the psychology behind Mm -hmm. this human element? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a big believer that we as an individual and as organizations, we don't bring in bad people on purpose. Processes create Poor processes create behaviors that don't give us the anticipated outcomes that we're looking for. And so rarely is it a people problem. It's a process problem that creates the unintended behaviors of well-meaning individuals that can create some of the frustrations that you see in the workplace. Now, I'm not naive enough to assume that you never have a people problem. I mean, sometimes there are individual people performance gaps, but that's not a complex systems problem then. That's one of those one variable type problems where action-based problem solving can really work. That difficult but important conversation that a supervisor has with a, a team member or a process worker where there is a performance gap, That's a difficult conversation, but that conversation can happen. You can identify what the gap is and work together on a performance improvement plan with the individual. These bigger systems problems, though, involve more than just an individual or just a group of people that are perceived to not be working well. And so one of the things that I always start out with is, you know, let's be hard on the process. Let's be fair with the people involved, both the people that are doing the work and the end users that are receiving the business benefits. And let's use past experiences. Let's use some of the past data to help us better understand what are those other variables that are causing those problems. And inevitably, it leads to... I'm just going to tell you right now, there are four big process inefficiencies that when we're looking at big systems problems, we need to keep our eye on. You know, one of them is where is the white space in the system? And I'm talking about idle time handoffs between work groups. You know, frequently within higher ed, information moves from individual request to department and then from a department to a division and then maybe to central campus and then back and forth and handoffs in and outside of the institution. The work that's being done in each one of those work groups is measured with a stopwatch, measured in minutes and seconds frequently. But it's those handoffs. They're typically measured with a calendar. Days, weeks, months that may go by before the next work group performs their necessary valuable activities. And so understanding where is the white space and what can we do to reduce or eliminate that white space is really important. Another Huge problem when we're dealing with any type of service-based processes, especially within higher ed, is um, rework loops or this notion that as work is being performed, mistakes can be made. And then those mistakes, they trickle downstream and eventually work is sent back and you have to do it over again. And then if it spans white space moments, it's sort of like it's a double dipper. It's doubly frustrating. These rework loops and white space contribute to lots of service-based process problems. There's how do we manage the variation upstream? You know, I started out the discussion by saying, you know, if we had just build institutions that only serviced one type of student or only researched one academic discipline, or we only allowed people with one sort of ailment into a healthcare environment. That's a way to manage that front end variation. We can't do that. We have to build systems that are robust to handle that front end variation. But then there's variation in process 
One of the characteristics of poorly performing processes is that you have different groups that perform similar activities, but they all do it different ways. You know, there isn't any sort of standardization. Every group has their nuanced differences. And so understanding when those nuanced differences are adding value, but when could we all be doing it the same way? I call that in-process variation. There's downstream variation. The outputs that we're creating aren't always in a consistent manner. Then another big area and a simple area to attack is visually identifiable waste. This comes straight from our manufacturing peers Go to where the work is being performed, observe what's happening in real time, and see the waste in front of you. And I know some of us work or live in environments that are more knowledge work. You're not building a car engine. You instead are doing things in front of a computer screen, passing electronic forms and information back and forth. But you can still observe in real time the work that's being performed and identify frustrations that are happening in real time. And so reducing and eliminating that visual waste can really help. Four big things, that's really where the focus needs to be. Okay, so say we have some college leaders listening today and they're thinking to themselves, love the formula, love how we can apply a scientific model to actually this continuous improvement mindset. What should these leaders sort of start thinking about now? Like what might they, from a top level leader position, what should they be putting into place? Tell me about what that would look like for people wanting to start. Right. So you don't need to solve it all by yourself. All right. I think it's important to understand what is the, some of the change management practitioners and thought leaders talk about create a sense of urgency or what is the burning platform? What are the big areas that we see performance gaps in that we can help make better? Or maybe in a simplified way, the way I kick off classes, where is the frustration right now? You know, if you could save If you could look back at your last work week and take 10% of that frustration out with that time savings, what, what could you do to help your department, help the organization, help yourself personally grow? So as a leader, don't assume you have to do it all yourself. Understand what is the sense of urgency, tie it to those larger objectives that the organization has, whether it's part of a strategic plan or a vision in the upcoming years. But then create a strong coalition or cross-functional team to take a look at some of these system problems. You know, most of your poorly performing processes span multiple functional groups. And so have more than just your face be the face that is part of the team that is working on this improvement. And while I always want groups to think big to think about how they can help make work better across the whole system and organization. Execute at a small level first. Get some small wins early. I talk about this in my classes. You know, it's obvious for any person who wants to start playing golf or wants to start to learn how to ski or play tennis or paddle or kayak. Anytime you're exposed to a new activity, the first time you do it, that's when you stink the most, okay? It's not that you're a bad person. It's just that you're new to this set of activities. Continuous improvement work is the same way. Doing cross-functional, collaborative, systems-based, data-driven continuous improvement, that's a new skill set for most people. And so you're going to learn. You're going to make some mistakes, 
But if you scope some of your early initiatives small, you'll learn from those mistakes and you'll get better. Uh, the work that you do at continuous improvement will get better. And so I always, I always say, let's envision large, but let's execute at a smaller manageable chunk, at least in the first few activities that you perform. Communication super important along the way and celebrate the successes that you experience both individually and collectively as a group and then go out and give it a try. I like that you're sort of taking the pressure off leaders to be perfect out of the gates, to be going at this alone. Instead, you're saying, hey, find some sort of early victories, some sort of things that must be done. They have a sense of urgency and they're important and valuable and we can celebrate these wins. But we're not tackling the biggest problem out of the gates because as a team, we're also building our own skills in the meantime. Can you think of any examples? I mean, you've been around higher ed for quite a while. Can you think of any examples that sort of pop into your mind as being those easy victories? Like, hey, any college could look at whatever the process is, whether it's a hiring process for new employees or a student process. Can you think of any examples? Sure. I'll give you a small and I'll give you a large example. And maybe I'll start first with the large example. This goes back to when we first began the conversation and I had a work colleague, Alice, that came into the class and then left excited. And part of their challenge was how do they make the support associated with research activities better. And one of their concerns was that all of the continuous improvement articles, all of the information that they Googled or brought up on was more manufacturing focused. And it was about trying to reduce as many defects as possible for a million opportunities. Let's only have three defects per million. How do we make work perfect? It's not about making work perfect. It's about making work better. And so with this research support activity, when we went about this scientific method way of understanding what's going on in current state, what are some of the root causes, what we found was that time was a big concern. The time it took to set up new research projects was a critical activity on our campus. And principal investigators, researchers, once they've received their granting dollars, if they can then start to use those dollars to create new knowledge and understand the research environment better within 30 days. The, a 30-day buffer is something that was acceptable for the principal investigator. And what we were finding is that many of our research projects were taking well in excess of six months, sometimes up to a year. It was taking so long to kick off new research activities that it put our researchers sort of behind the eight ball, behind their other peers and created an inability for them to get that phase two, phase three funding as well. So as we systematically looked at variables that were associated with this. We broke research down into set up ongoing activities and closures, you know, take the big problem and break it down into smaller components. And a cross-functional team worked on research setup activities. And it was hard. Uh, it was hard work. This team had never done this type of continuous improvement work before. There was all sorts of change resistance along the way. And performance was not at 95, 99, 99.996%. We were successful just over 24% of the time. I mean, it, trying to get those research projects up within the 30-day time period. So the team worked at identifying some of the root causes. Some were really simple, straightforward, head slap moments where we're just like, 
I can't believe that we're still doing this. Others required more extensive technology-based solutions and, and staff development. Others were ways to reframe some of the early questions that you needed to get answers to set up these research uh, projects. In the end, we went from 24% to 67%. Now, 67%, that's barely passing. And if we were in a a manufacturing environment, if I am creating widgets and only 67% are successful, I'm probably not in that manufacturing business for too long. But we were thrilled. We celebrated that event. I did a cartwheel in some of the cake cutting ceremonies to show my excitement for the team's work. And it was a great win. That 67% got better and better and better over the years. But it was an example of how a really large problem was broken down into smaller components. And the focus wasn't on trying to make work perfect. It was just about making work better. A smaller activity was one of the frustrations on our campus It's not a frustration, it's a joy on our campus, actually, is that when um, students tour our university, you know, we're the University of Wisconsin, and so dairy is an important activity in our state, and we have whole departments and centers that study dairy activities. We have cows and barns on campus. We even have a center that makes um, premium ice cream from the cow's milk that is studied as part of the research activities. And you can go to a couple of spots on campus and get one of these super premium ice cream cones. And so there's a little shop called The Daily Scoop, where after your tour is over with, you can go to The Daily Scoop to get one of these super premium ice cream cones. Every prospective student on campus gets a free coupon to get one of these ice cream cones. It's a great experience. Hey, along the way, faculty, staff, and others on campus know about The Daily Scoop. We don't get it free, but we're more than willing to pay for one of these delicious ice cream cones. But there are times... When the line is so long that nobody wants to wait for that super premium ice cream cone. And so one of the practice projects that was performed was how do we reduce wait times at the Daily Scoop? Now, is this going to help the university go from a top 10 research university in the world to a top five? Maybe not, but it did have a lot of frustration There were frustrations that both process workers as well as end users were experiencing. It contained a lot of those inefficient, those big four inefficiencies that we talked about earlier, you know, white space, visual waste, and others. And it was a great practice project to bring a cross-functional team together to help make the daily scoop better. We also learned from it. The first time we did it, It didn't work. And here's the reason why. We did not bring in the people who were doing the work to be problem-solving analysts. Instead, we had a lot of senior manager types who weren't scooping the ice cream, weren't working with the individuals, didn't know about how cones were stacked and how ice cream, when an empty bucket was complete, how the new one came in. And we really needed that insight from the people who were doing the work to see in version two a better daily scoop. So I think that's a really important lesson that we can all learn is that when you're changing a process or a practice, even if it's kind of seemingly small, not terribly significant to the 
overarching success of your organization. And yet, you must bring in the people that will be in the trenches every day and figure out from their standpoint what it's actually going to work versus what's not going to. The other thing that I just thought of, and I think this is rather genius, is that we now need a new college ranking for best freebie yes. on college tours, yes. right? And yes. that one might be up, that might, what is that, a top five, top three free ice cream? I think you Yeah, with a low wait time, right? We don't want to wait. We're not that invested in it. So that's how we're going to get the new college rankings uh, going. Okay, so Scott, I really like what you're talking about. You've kind of touched on, you know, the four ways that you look at problems to start breaking it down into more manageable chunks so that you can actually tackle it. You shared some success stories. You talked about the importance of really starting small with sort of as your team is getting trained and we all are learning and kind of upskilling ourselves. Are you able to go so far as to say, this is how much money you might be able to save if you reduce the frustration, improve a process, you reduce aggravation, not just for the end user, such as a student, but you also reduce it for the employees that are in those trenches every day. Can we quantify that? Is there a a dollar amount that a school might expect to benefit from or save? Yeah, another really good question. And the answer to every really good question is it depends. But this, how do you measure the cost of imperfection? How do you measure the cost of frustration? How do you measure the cost of quality? There are step-by-step approaches at doing this. What I warn practitioners about is if your primary metric is a financial metric, but the process activity is not financially driven, you may create unintended consequences. And so, I guess where I'm going with this is the way that we measure the benefits aren't always with a dollar amount. How do you sure you could come up with an approach to try to financially justify the benefits of a process worker who sticks around the organization longer? Lots of data on the cost of onboarding and hiring new talent, the cost that it takes or the drain that organizations feel when high performers leave that organization. So some of it can be financially driven. There are financial metrics, and one of the techniques is something called cost of quality analysis, where we take a look at both the easily visible cost drivers as well as the under the surface of the water issues that are present in the poorly performing process that are either reduced or eliminated in your future state. What I instead try to tell practitioners about is definitely understanding the benefits that the organization or the business feels and and higher it is a business. And so I, I don't feel awkward in saying the business benefits, but in a... As right, suggested by the title of my podcast, it, Get Down to College Business. I'm right there with you, Scott. No exactly. disclaimer for me. Yeah. But then also making sure that our future state performance gains also have some sort of benefits for the end user. That benefits understanding and measurement, critically important. Not always is it though financially driven. I guess in the end, I want to make sure that performance is increased. And so frequently what I'll tell practitioners is let's get an understanding of how we describe performance in this complex system process right now. Is it about customer satisfaction numbers? Is it about the ability to complete a certain number of tasks in a given time period? Is it how 
quickly we could perform said activity? What's the needle of performance that this process currently has in current state? And by needle of performance, I always draw a picture on the board or I use my arms to describe a speedometer, like a car speedometer. And my guess is that in current state, that that performance is low. That's the reason why there's this frustration right now that work needs to be made better. And then in future state, when the performance goes up, not only do we want to measure what that future state performance was, was, but that delta change, that change in the needle from current state to future state, then let's derive some of the end user and business benefits that are associated from that performance gain. So instead of just financial metrics, I also want to take a look at performance metrics. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And it sounds like really the leaders should kind of know where their targets ideally will end up. So you kind of have to go into that, like, what are we actually hoping to achieve out of that? And then you can begin to measure it and kind of maybe put the dollar amount on it afterward. I will say this, and I feel like I've kind of skirted your question, you know, what is the formula or what is the dollar amount? Every year I'm assigned to either participate, lead, or frequently mentor between 60 and 80 continuous improvement projects, not just in higher ed, but across service sector, manufacturing industries, all of these different participants that take these courses, as they become certified, they have to complete a continuous improvement project. And I'm frequently involved with them. I'm not leading them. If I was leading 80 projects a year, yeah, there'd be a lot of frustration in my life for sure. In any case, every single project to a person in the last year, because I just got done summarizing the numbers, and I believe in the previous year. So in the last two years, we're talking over 100 projects. Every single participant that has followed this, take a look at the whole system. Don't take a look at just an isolated activity by an individual person. Use a data-driven approach that follows the scientific method. Use a cross-functional team to help with the exploration of issues and the, and the analysis that goes from current to future state. Every single project to a person has exceeded either the cost benefits or the performance gains that they had originally anticipated. I mean, and I think what that tells us is that we have a lot of really poorly performing processes in our workplace. And so the bar is really low. Rarely is it difficult to create the future state benefits that you're looking for if you have a tried and true recipe that you and your group can work through. So yeah, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit and there's a lot of business benefit to be gained from continuous improvement. All right, Scott. So as we're wrapping up here, tell us your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution. It could be related to operational efficiency, but it could be related to anything else. Mm. Your best advice. Wow. Save the toughest for last, right? One of the things that I think is critically important is a topic that we hit on early. I think that good leaders are change agents in the organization. And so understanding what are some of the underlying issues associated with change resistance and what are approaches that you need to employ as a leader to create user acceptance and buy-in really important. I think it's also a lesson in humility or checking your ego at the door. You were once a technically proficient high performer that has frequently been elevated to a leadership position. You did good work in the past and whatever your past roles were, and now your job is to manage and lead others. 
And that's a completely different skill set. And so sometimes it's about realizing that the skills that you used to have may not completely apply in an environment where you're managing and leading. But it also means that you have to rely on others who are in the trenches, who are performing that process-driven work activities and developing them. It's not about you. It's about the organization and it's about the customers and end users that you're serving within that organization. So there's a piece of humility there. Sometimes we clump that all together in talking about servant leadership, but that's hard because, you know, you were a high performer and that relied on you individually in the past. And so passing that forward to others, I think, is an important best practice. I think another really important piece that I've seen work really well is understanding current state, building changes to help make a better future state. You're going to need evidence. And so whether you call that evidence the past stories, qualitative data, or if the evidence is a count or an average or a collection, a sample of data, a data-driven approach can really help. And people acknowledge that and say, yes, I want to be data-driven, but frequently don't have the patience to make sure that the data that they're looking at is a real reflection of what's going on in current state. And so I always talk about patient data-driven problem solving. And patience is one of these virtues that a lot of us find difficult, myself included. And so there's a tendency then to say, well, I don't have the data that I need, so I'll just make a knee-jerk decision. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of our discussion where action-based problem solving works great when you got one or two variables, but these big system problems probably have more than one or two variables. And so, so take a deep breath, Get the data that you need, rely on others, use your change management skills to help along the way. I'm going to just imagine that there's going to be people who want to reach out to you to continue this conversation, tap your expertise. Would you be willing to share your contact information? We'll link it in our show notes. And if you have any books or other resource suggestions, we can also link that in our show notes. That'd be great. Uh, Happy to share that with you. We do a variety of professional development programs across the different topics that we've been talking about today at the Center for Professional and Executive Development in the Wisconsin School of Business. I think a lot of the courses help with folks in higher ed, but really in any type of service environment. And um, I'd be happy to share that info with you. Fantastic. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.